Before we begin, an important message from me, your host. I'm pleased to announce applications are finally open for the 2024 Cost of Glory Men's Retreat. We're going to Rome again this July 2024. Bigger and better. The Cost of Glory Men's Retreat, like before, is focused on a crash course and practical training in the classic art of persuasion. We study so many of history's greatest speakers and persuaders in this podcast, and I use their tools in my own business and personal life, and I studied them for many years before starting this show. My colleague Eric and I want to share the secrets of this ancient art, the art of rhetoric, with you. And we're going to do it in Rome once again. We're also going to see, while we're in Rome, all the great historical sites of the city and talk about the great men who lived, spoke, fought, and died in those streets. Brutus, Tarquinius, the Gracchi, Marius, Sulla, Crassus, Cato, Pompey, Caesar, Antony, Augustus, and more. We have some incredible people listening to the show along with you right now. And partly, I want to connect you with each other. Do I need to say more? Go to our website, costofglory.com, for more information, specifically costofglory.com slash retreat. I'll put a link in the show notes. Go there and fill out an application. Spots are limited, and I've already gotten many inquiries, so act quickly. Hope to see you there. Now for the show. He was the first Roman to cross the Taurus with an army. He passed the Tigris and captured and burned the royal cities of Asia, Tigranocerta, Cabira, Sinope, and Nisibis, before the eyes of their kings. He made his own the regions to the north as far as the Phasis, to the east as far as Media, and to the south as far as the Red Sea, through the assistance of the Arabian kings. He annihilated the forces of the hostile kings and failed only in the capture of their persons, since like wild beasts they fled away into deserts and trackless and impenetrable forests. Today I'm going to share with you the story of a fascinating figure who seems all but forgotten in our day, but until very recently his name was a byword for extravagant luxury. He was a man of many contradictions. I was recently on a Greek island, the Greek island of Samos, which is right off the coast of Turkey, and I was passing through a small town along the beach on the south of that island, and I saw a little restaurant and B&B, one of the nicer ones in the town, and I was struck by its name. It was called by the name of this man, a man who once waged war against the island of Samos. His name was Lucullus, or in the local Greek language, Luculos. Lucius Licinius Lucullus, right-hand man of Sulla, dedicatee of Sulla's memoirs, in fact, a friend of Cicero, an occasional ally of Crassus, a thorn in the side of Pompey, a sworn enemy of Julius Caesar, and most importantly, the man who humbled Mithridates and conquered Armenia. He was one of Rome's greatest commanders. In fact, Cicero said that Mithridates, the greatest king since the time of Alexander, admitted that he had discovered Lucullus to be a greater general than any of those he had read of. Lucullus was a very successful man, but he was also a kind of a tragic figure, and his life contains many lessons 
that we're going to get to some of them in this episode. We're going to talk today about how to win recognition early, the importance of studying for success in life. We're going to talk about how to win wars, of course, for sure. There's plenty of lessons on generalship from Lucullus that apply to pretty much any endeavor that involves a lot of people. And not so much in this episode, but in the course of his life, we're going to learn how not to pick a wife. And I think there's a lot to learn about the choices that you're going to face, likely, if you succeed. But let's get to it. I'm Alex Petkus. You're listening to The Cost of Glory. This is part one of three of The Life of Lucullus. Now, Lucullus is a grand character in world history and very much worth knowing about. He's a large presence in the life of Pompey, who we're going to do next. So as I was doing research for Pompey and I was going back over Plutarch's life of Lucullus, I I decided we're going to add another name to the list of figures that we cover for the Visions of Caesar series. We're doing this series covering all of the men that were most important around the life of Julius Caesar. Lucullus, arguably a minor character in Caesar's story in particular, but he was a very big character in Pompey's story. So today I'm going to present you highlights that are drawn mainly from the life of Lucullus that Plutarch wrote about the man. Before we go any further, though, I have a message from one of our sponsors. Here's something special about Lucullus. I've talked before how many Romans of the late Republic used learning a classical language to magnify their power as persuaders and orators. Cicero wrote about how important it was for him to learn Greek in order to perfect his Roman oratory skills, his Latin skills, that is, Lucullus did this too, as we'll see. Learning another ancient language with an amazing literary tradition was important for Lucullus, for Cicero, and for countless other Romans, both as a training for thinking better and as a tool for being able to write better with more flexibility and power and persuasiveness. Great English writers have done this too with both Greek and Latin. And what Cicero and Lucullus both did was hire private tutors to make sure they made the quickest progress possible. And actually, they had the same tutor, Antiochus of Ascalon, for Greek philosophy, which I think is fascinating. So everyone on the internet that I talk to now seems to know that a private tutor is by far the best way to learn. Well, our sponsor and fellow Cost of Glory fanboys, the guys at the Ancient Language Institute, offer private tutoring in Greek and Latin. Their tutors generally follow their own unique, very well-thought-out curriculum, but they also tailor it to your specific needs, and you can start anytime. They offer Greek, Latin, Old English, and Hebrew. Old English and Hebrew, I'm told, are currently full, but Greek and Latin are available and better anyway, if you ask the host of The Cost of Glory his opinion. Ancientlanguage.com is the main website. Specific links in the show notes. Tell them I sent you if you go there. Thanks, Ancient Language Institute for your commitment to Roman greatness and for being fans of the cost of glory. In the case of Lucullus, Plutarch begins his biography, his grandfather was a man of consular rank, and his uncle on his mother's side was Metellus, surnamed Numidicus. This is the guy who, by the way, was the Metellus that Marius kind of 
sparred with in Numidia that he eventually took the command of the Numidian war from. So he's got Metelli on his mother's side, very blue-blooded family going on. But as for his parents, his father was convicted of peculation. That's misadministration as a provincial governor. And his mother, Caecilia, had the bad name of a dissolute woman. Lucullus himself, while he was still a mere youth, before he had entered public life or stood for any office, made it his first business, this is important, to impeach his father's accuser, Servilius the Augur, whom he had found wronging the commonwealth. The Romans thought that this was a brilliant stroke. You know, basically, Lucullus prosecutes, as soon as he's of age, 18 or so, he prosecutes a very prominent man in Roman society, the man who had basically banished his father to exile and ruined his career. The Romans thought this was a brilliant stroke, and the case was in everybody's mouth, like a great deed of prowess. Indeed, they thought the business of impeachment, on general principles and without special provocation, no ignoble thing, so it's, you know, it's good to prosecute a magistrate for misadministration. That's one of the ways the Romans police their own. These political trials are all on personal initiative. There's no public prosecutor. So they think that's no ignoble thing. But they were very desirous to see their young men fastening themselves on malefactors like high-bred whelps on wild beasts. And Lucullus really fit that description. And as far as we can tell from the historical record, his father was probably guilty of misadministration in his province of Spain. But, you know, Lucullus felt that he had to defend his father's honor. I think that's a promising sign in a youth. It shows the importance of taking big things on early. This, this really got a lot of attention on him from a young age. So moving on, this next passage I want to look at, I think you can file it under the importance of being a good writer for a public career. Quote, Lucullus was trained to speak fluently both Latin and Greek, so that Sulla, in writing his own memoirs, dedicated them to him as a man who would set in order and duly arrange the history of the times better than himself. For the style of Lucullus was not only businesslike and ready, the same was true of many other mans in the forum, but Lucullus from his youth up was devoted to the general and so-called liberal culture then in vogue, wherein the beautiful was sought. And when he came to be well on in years, he suffered his mind to find complete leisure and repose, as it were after many great struggles, in philosophy, encouraging the contemplative side of his nature and giving timely halt and check after his difference with Pompey to the play of his ambition. So in other words, Plutarch says, in his later years, Lucullus gave himself over to the leisure of philosophy. And Plutarch puts a kind of a nice name on something that other people later gave, gave him a bad name for, of kind of wallowing in luxury. And uh, Plutarch, you know, has, is inclined to take a sympathetic reading of Lucullus's later years. That's his foreshadowing a little bit where we're going to end up. But I think it's interesting that Plutarch points out the, the same thing that made him really valuable to Sulla, and arguably we're going to see the same thing that made him great as a commander, the same thing that made him great as a politician, ended up in his later years being an object of reproach. We'll get to that. But meanwhile, I think 
it's worth quoting here a passage from a work of Cicero about Lucullus on this subject of his learning. And Cicero, as a matter of fact, dedicated an entire book to Lucullus. And in his later years, he was writing a lot of philosophical dialogues and putting philosophical arguments, you know, the Stoics and the Epicureans and the academics. He was putting all these philosophical arguments in the mouths of these prominent Roman statesmen. And he did one involving Lucullus, and it's called the Academica, book two of the Academica in, in particular. Well, here's what Cicero says about Lucullus in Academica book two, the very beginning. Military distinction was not particularly anticipated from one who had spent his youth in practice at the bar and the long period of his questorship peacefully in Asia while Morena was carrying on the war in Pontus. But intellectual gifts that even surpassed belief had no need of an unschooled training that is given by experience. Let me read that last sentence again. Intellectual gifts that even surpassed belief had no need of the unschooled training that is given by experience. So Cicero is saying he was so smart and learned that he, he didn't need military experience before taking on a serious military command. Accordingly, after spending the whole of his journey by land and sea, partly in cross-questioning those who were experts and partly in reading military history, he arrived in Asia a made general, although he had started from Rome a tyro in military matters, you know, somebody without experience in military matters. For he had a memory for facts that was positively inspired, although Hortensius had a better memory for words, but Lucullus's memory was more valuable than Hortensius's, that is, inasmuch as in the conduct of business, facts are of more assistance than words. And um, this next little story he, he tells here, I really like this. And this form of memory is recorded as having been present in a remarkable degree in Themistocles. This is one of the great Greek statesmen who helped defeat the Persians. Themistocles, whom we rank as easily the greatest man of Greece, and of whom the story is told that when somebody offered to impart to him the memoria technica, that is the art of memory, is what Cicero is talking about, like a, a training regime to how to improve your memory. And he says it was then coming into vogue. When Themistocles was offered this art of memory, he replied that he would sooner learn to forget no doubt this was because whatever he heard or saw remained fixed in his memory. Sometimes it's, it's a blessing to forget. Uh, it's finishing up here. Gifted with such natural endowments, Lucullus had also added the training which Themistocles had despised. And thus he kept facts engraved on his mind, just as we enshrine in writings things that we desire to record. So Lucullus trained his memory on purpose with the rhetorical art of memory. It's a very elaborate system of memorizing things involving probably memory palaces. And this actually does work. You have a natural memory and a synthetic memory. You know, some people are naturally good at remembering things, but actually practicing your synthetic memory can strengthen that. So that's, that's what Cicero says about Lucullus. And he, he goes on to talk about how Lucullus took philosophers with him on, on his campaigns. Antiochus of Ascalon in particular, who was also Cicero's teacher. And 
It's important to note, I read this passage to give you kind of a color of Lucullus's reputation, but Cicero does exaggerate some here. You know, he, he gives you the impression that Lucullus went on to command against Mithridates just having read some books about war and never having actually fought. But in fact, he did have quite a bit of military experience by our standards, maybe not a ton by Roman standards. But the way that he got his military experience is through association with Sulla. Sulla, whom we've covered in another biography in the Cost of Glory. We won't go over his life at all here again. So Lucullus got close to Sulla first, this man who really ended up making his career in a lot of ways. He got close to Sulla fighting in the social wars. They had a family connection. And one of the key things that you have to understand about Lucullus is that he is in this conservative aristocratic party in Rome, the Optimates, and Sulla is also in that party too. Lucullus, throughout his life, he's a diehard conservative. He's an Optimate, as they call him. So he meets Sulla in the social war, and we don't know a whole lot of details, but he does serve under him. And after that, after that experience, he gets elected Quaestor. And he's probably about 30 years old when he gets elected Quaestor, which is the lowest rank along the Roman cursus honorum, of course. And when you're a Quaestor, you get assigned typically to a provincial governor or a, a commander to help them take care of paperwork and account keeping, and you can become a kind of gopher. And so Lucullus gets assigned to Sulla, this man he had a family connection to, he had a relationship with Sulla already, fighting under him in the social war. That's when the Italian allies rose up against Rome and were brutally put down. And so when Sulla is about to march on Mithridates, famously he gets deprived of his command by the authorities back in Rome and they're expecting him to lay down arms. And then he marches on Rome to basically undo that act of the establishment, the tribunes. We've talked about in other contexts. Well, the thing that really stuck out about Lucullus to Sulla was all of Sulla's other officers, we're told, abandoned him as soon as he turned his army around to march on Rome. They all vanished, except Lucullus. And this really ends up being a key in Lucullus's career. I think it's one of these great examples of the benefits of taking a huge risk on a great man. Because Lucullus, you know, if things had gone differently... He could have really been committing career suicide here by sticking with Sulla at this point. And Sulla never forgot that. In retrospect, we see that Sulla was a winner, but who knew at the time, right? So Sulla marches back to Rome. He drives Gaius Marius and his friends out, reestablishes order, and then he finally marches on Mithridates. And he, he actually sends Lucullus ahead while he is crossing the sea with the army. Lucullus kind of is part of the, the vanguard. And he gives Lucullus many big jobs very quickly in the war against Mithridates. We've talked about that war in many episodes. So what, what the situation we have here, Sulla and Lucullus, I think is comparable to the situation you have between Marius and Sulla earlier in Sulla's career. Sulla may be 20 years older than Lucullus, just as Gaius Marius was 20 years older than Sulla. Only Lucullus and Sulla never had a falling out. So... Lucullus is the quester there with Sulla in the Mithridatic Wars, and Sulla sends Lucullus on a very important mission early on. So at the beginning of the war, Sulla is at Athens 
Athens has rebelled. The tyrant of Athens is thrown in with Mithridates, and he's got his commander. Mithridates has a, a guy named Archelaus, who is in the Piraeus, the harbor of Athens. And so Sulla's problem is he he doesn't have a war fleet. And you know, he used some transport ships to get from Italy to Greece, but you know, he doesn't have battleships like you need to blockade a harbor like Athens's Piraeus. So he's having trouble. And so he sends Lucullus on maybe the most important mission that he's had yet to go get some ships. He sends Lucullus to Egypt. And Lucullus has this reputation for justice and restraint. And I think what he does in Egypt is maybe a good example of this. So I think it's really cool also. I'm going to read you this passage. It's really cool to imagine this scene where you have this Roman kid. I mean, he's 30 years old. And he's speaking on equal terms with the pharaoh of Egypt, who's a Greek guy, a Ptolemy. And so here we go. From thence he set sail for Egypt but was attacked by pirates and lost most of his vessels. He himself, however, escaped in safety and entered the port of Alexandria in splendid style. The entire Egyptian fleet came out to meet him, as it was wont to do, as it was accustomed to do when a king put into port, in resplendent array, and the youthful Ptolemy, besides showing him other astonishing marks of kindness, gave him lodging and sustenance in the royal palace, whither no foreign commander had ever been brought before. The allowance which the king made for his expenses was not the same as others had received it, but four times as much, and yet Lucullus accepted nothing beyond what was actually necessary and took no gift, although he was offered the worth of eighty talents. It is also said that he neither went up to Memphis, a few days' journey up, up the Nile, nor sought out any other of the famous wonders of Egypt, so he didn't go on a sightseeing tour. This he held to be the privilege of a leisurely and luxurious sightseer, not of one who, like himself, had left his commander-in-chief encamped under the open sky alongside the battlements of the enemy. Going on here, I think this is important context, Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, abandoned his alliance with Rome out of fear for the outcome of the war but furnished Lucullus with ships to convey him as far as Cyprus, embraced him graciously at parting, and offered him a costly emerald laid in gold. At first Lucullus declined to accept it, but when the king showed him that the engraving on it was a likeness of himself, that is, of the king, he was afraid to reject it, lest he be thought to, to have sailed away at utter enmity with the king and to have some plot laid against him on the voyage. So the Ptolemies are famous for scheming and intrigue at the court, also for luxury. And Lucullus didn't want to accept any unnecessary gifts because he knows, you know, these things come with strings attached. Of course, you've got to use your judgment, right? You know, so he takes this brooch or ring or whatever it is with Ptolemy's face on it, this emerald and gold thing. And you can imagine Cato the Younger here taking a hard line and saying, no way, and, and just offending Ptolemy here. But Lucullus says, fine, thanks for the ring. So, you know, he's, he's restrained, but with a little bit of moderation. And uh, I think this is amazing, actually, that, that, that gives you a sense of the stakes of the war here, that the, the king of Egypt 
doesn't give Sala any ships or join in alliance with him. And Plutarch doesn't make this totally explicit here, but there's two aspects to this. So on the one hand, Mithridates has gotten a whole lot of the eastern Mediterranean to revolt against Rome. I mean, many cities all throughout Asia, people are seeing, you know, Rome's days are numbered in the east at least. But there's this other aspect that Plutarch doesn't talk about here, but later on he does, that, that it's not just about Mithridates versus Rome. By this time, Ptolemy is kind of nervous that if he helps Sulla, who is an enemy of the regime at Rome, that, that the, the regime at Rome, the Marian regime, I don't know if Marius is still alive, you know, Cinna and his friends, who were Sulla's enemies, that they might hold Ptolemy responsible for aiding an enemy of the state. So there's a civil war and a, and a, a foreign war going on at the same time. And Mithridates has been kind of siding with the party of Marius against Sulla, and he goes on to ally with Sertorius later on. So th- it's a very complicated political situation. But, but Lucullus does a good job of making the best of what he can do about it, and he you know, told me gives him some ships, not a fleet. And then Lucullus sails around the Aegean, and much of the Aegean was with Mithridates, and this is actually where he wages war against Samos with some Rhodian ships, etc., etc. So, so in sum, Lucullus helps Sulla at sea. He kind of builds a fleet that ends up being important for Sulla's war effort. And I'm going to skip the rest of the war here. It's good, but it's not kind of central. It's safe to say, though, that it proves Cicero was exaggerating. Lucullus actually did get a lot of experience. It was mainly naval experience, though, interestingly. So to be fair, he doesn't have a lot of experience fighting battles on land, and that that ends up being mainly what he does against Mithridates. And it's important to note that we haven't talked about Mithridates too much here. Mithridates was a very formidable enemy of the Romans and guilty of heinous crimes, really, against the Roman people. He, in one night, is said to have slaughtered across Asia or orchestrated the slaughter of 80,000 Roman equestrian businessmen and their families. There's this bloodbath that um, Rome feels is not avenged because Sulla doesn't actually end Mithridates' career. He doesn't kill him. He makes a peace treaty with him. He, He doesn't completely neutralize him. And so Sulla is trying to tie up this war and he goes back to Italy to fight against the populist regime at Rome to fight the first great Roman civil war. Lucullus, however, lucky for him, does not actually participate in that war. Here's what Plutarch says. But in the boundless and manifold evils which Sulla and Marius were bringing upon the people of Italy at that time, he had no share whatsoever. For as some kindly fortune would have it, he was detained at his business in Asia. So he has this long equestership that gets extended over, I think, three years. And he's off in Asia doing kind of peacetime work. However, Sulla accorded no less favor to Lucullus than to his other friends. So even though Lucullus didn't come to fight the civil war with Sulla, he managed to still stay in Sulla's favor, which is kind of remarkable because Pompey and Crassus were men that Sulla favored because they allied with him early in the civil war. But Lucullus didn't do that. But nonetheless, he was still a kind of favorite of Sulla. His memoirs, as I've said, Sulla dedicated to Lucullus in token of affection and in his will appointed him guardian of his son, 
thereby passing Pompey by. And this seems to have been the first ground for estrangement and jealousy between these two men. Both were young and burning for distinction. So that's some nice foreshadowing from Plutarch. Lucullus and Pompey are going to be great rivals. Going on here, though. This is about Lucullus's consulship, and this is actually four years or so after Sulla died. Lucullus became consul in 74. Shortly after the death of Sulla, Lucullus was made consul along with Marcus Cotta, about the 176th Olympiad. Many were now trying to stir up anew the Mithridatic War, which Marcus said had not come to an end, but merely to a pause. And it's worth explaining, pausing here to explain the causes of this. It's called the Third Mithridatic War. Here's the background, since Plutarch doesn't really explain it here. Essentially, the Romans never ratified Sulla's treaty with Mithridates that we mentioned earlier. So what happened was one of Sulla's officers that he left in charge, who was a very opportunistic guy named Murena, that Cicero later defended in a famous case. Well, Morena decides to start raiding Mithridates' territory, and then Mithridates beats him, and then they, they make another peace treaty. And that was the so-called Second Mithridatic War. That was in the late 80s. And so Plutarch's now saying, well, a third Mithridatic War is on the horizon. And this time, before it actually it seemed that Mithridates kind of wanted to chill and, and not fight a war. But this time, Mithridates is actually the aggressor. And he invades the territory of Cappadocia. I think that the Romans are kind of to blame, too, because once again, they failed to ratify their treaty that their ambassador made after the war with Morena. So they, they've twice failed to ratify treaties that Mithridates has made. And so he's kind of getting fed up because it seems probably to both sides that neither of them want to stop fighting until they win everything they think they can win. They, they both kind of want to keep their options open. And so, you know, Rome has a share in the blame here. It's, it's worth mentioning also at this point, the king of Armenia is already involved too in this war. Mithridates is allied with the king of Armenia and his name is Tigranes. Mithridates actually marries his daughter off to Tigranes and they, and they, they undertake a joint expedition to start this war, and they capture a pretty large kingdom in Central Asia Minor, and that's Cappadocia, which was allied with the Romans. So that's the origins of this war, the dispute over Cappadocia, Central Asia Minor. Okay, going on here. Now, Lucullus has got a problem. He urgently wants some opportunity to take the war to Mithridates, to be the leader of the war effort against Mithridates. But here's his problem. Therefore, when the province of Cisalpine Gaul was allotted to Lucullus, he was displeased, since it offered no opportunity for great exploits. So, remember, as you're, after you made a consul, you go off to become a proconsul, a provincial governor, often involving military duties. And the consular assignments are, are picked by a law of one of the Gracchi brothers, actually, these assignments are actually made before you enter your office as consuls, sort of a strategy for reducing corruption. Uh, but so anyway, Lucullus is stuck with this kind of 
low prestige, low stakes province, Cisalpine Gaul, which is basically northern Italy. And, uh, you know, he wants to take on this war. Well, here's how it happens. But what most of all embittered him was the reputation which Pompey was winning in Spain. He's fighting against Sertorius, the greatest Roman rebel. See episode one, Cost of Glory. If the war in Spain should happen to come to an end, Pompey was more likely than anyone else to be at once chosen general against Mithridates. Therefore, when Pompey wrote home requesting money and declaring that if they did not send it, he would abandon Spain and Sertorius and bring his forces back to Italy, Lucullus moved heaven and earth to have the money sent and to prevent Pompey from coming back on any pretext whatsoever while he was consul. He knew that all Rome would be in Pompey's hands if he were there with so large an army. For the man who at that time controlled the course of political affairs by virtue of doing and saying everything to court the favor of the people, Cathagus hated Lucullus, who loathed his manner of life, full as it was of disgraceful amours and wanton trespasses. Against this man, Lucullus waged open war, so to speak, politically, Plutarch means. So Lucullus campaigns to keep Pompey busy, send him money, whatever he needs, keep him fighting the war in Spain. This thing with Mithridates is brewing. And Cathagus is a populist, kind of kind of a, a shadowy behind-the-scenes figure. We don't know too much about him other than that he apparently kind of ruled the political scene at Rome. In a way, he was a sort of Crassus before Crassus, a kind of puppet master figure. He actually never became consul. So Lucullus hates his guts. He hates Lucullus's guts. He's a kind of dissolute playboy. Lucullus is a bastion of respectability. And uh, so he needs, the, however, to get Cathegus's help somehow to help him get the command against Mithridates. And it takes a stroke of luck and some dashing charm on the part of Lucullus. And so here's the setup. At this time, there came tidings of the death of Octavius, the governor of Cilicia, Cilicia is in southern Turkey, along the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, uh, that bend where Turkey turns into Syria today. And it's a great stopping off point for, it's basically borders Cappadocia, where Mithridates has just begun this war. So, okay, Octavius, the governor, dies. There were many eager applicants for the province and they paid court to Cathegus as the man best able to further their designs. Of Cilicia itself, Lucullus made little account, but in the belief that if he should get this province, which was near Cappadocia, as I just said, no one else would be sent to conduct the war against Mithridates, he strained every nerve to keep the province from being assigned to another, and finally... Contrary to his natural bent, he was driven by the necessities of the case to adopt a course which was neither dignified nor praiseworthy, it is true, but conducive to his end. So he was willing to compromise a little bit, and here's what Plutarch means. There was a certain woman then in Rome, Prychia by name, whose fame for beauty and wit filled the city. In other respects, she was no whit better than an ordinary courtesan, so she's a courtesan, basically. 
but a special one, but she used her associates and companions to further the political ambitions of her friends. And so added to her other charms the reputation of being a true comrade and one who could bring things to pass. So she's almost a little bit of a power broker here. And you find figures like this in uh, Roman society and Greek society sometimes too. I think of Aspasia, Pericles' philosopher courtesan. She thus acquired the greatest influence. Prykia, that is. And when Cathegus also, then at the zenith of his fame and in control of the city, joined her train, so to speak, and became her lover, political power passed entirely into her hands, which I just think is a hilarious indictment of Cathegus from Plutarch's eyes. Going on here, though. No public measure passed unless Cathegus favored it, and Cathegus did nothing except with Prykia's approval. This woman, then, Lucullus won over by gifts and flatteries. And that's all. Just gifts and flatteries. As far as we know, that's all Plutarch says, at least. And it was doubtless a great boon for a woman so forward and ostentatious to be seen sharing the ambitions of Lucullus. So, you know, she liked being associated with this noble, upstanding guy herself. Straight away then, Lucullus had Cathegus singing his praises and suing for Cilicia on his behalf. But as soon as he obtained the province, there was no further need of his soliciting the aid of Prykia or of Cathegus, for that matter. But, but all were unanimous and prompt in putting into his hands the Mithridatic War, assured that no one else could bring it better to a triumphant close. So remember here, you know, he's got to have a legal basis for his authority, and that's the tricky part. And unlike, say, a Marius or later a Pompey, he couldn't just get a tribune of the plebs to change his province through a plebiscite. Because remember, tribunes don't have any powers right now. This is after Sulla took them away in 82, 81, and before Pompey and Crassus restore the powers of the tribunate in 70. And anyway, you know, it was against his character to use demagoguery to get his way, so he would prefer not to have used a tribute of the plebs. It's much more suited to him to kind of woo this courtesan chastely, we suppose, um, rather than be playing the demagogue. And so he, he has to get this powerful senator, Cathegus, to help him, and, and it works out. But once he gets that, everybody sees he's the guy for the war, all the senates behind him. They urge him to do anything he can to win the war against Mithridates. He got a very strong mandate. And I think this passage is interesting because it shows he knew how to turn on the charm when he had to with this lady Prykia. It's also interesting, though, and I'll foreshadow it a little bit here, that he's later going to fail to finish his business with Mithridates because he's not willing to flatter and charm his troops in the same way. And you get the sense that he... He felt that he was above that with, with his troops. And so he must have really been straining to kind of lower himself to, to sweet-talking this lady power broker. Okay, so he gets the command. Moving on. And I'm going to read you another passage that shows what he does when he lands in Asia. With a legion which he had raised himself in Italy, Lucullus crossed into Asia, and there he assumed command of the rest of the Roman forces. There's four legions that are already there for him to 
assume control of. All these had long been spoiled by habits of luxury and greed, and the Fimbrians, as they were called, had become unmanageable through long lack of discipline. These were the men who, in collusion with Fimbria, had slain Flaccus. This is a, an episode you probably don't remember from the life of Sulla. We don't need to get into the details, but so there was another consul and Fimbria was his friend and then he murdered Flaccus and took control of the troops. So they murdered Flaccus or he murdered Flaccus, their consul in general, and then they had delivered Fimbria himself, these troops, over to Sulla. So the troops kind of turned on Fimbria. They're, they're very self-willed and lawless, Plutarch continues, but they're good fighters, hardy and experienced in war. However, in a short time, Lucullus pruned off all their insolent boldness and reformed the rest. Then, for the first time, as it would seem, they made the acquaintance of a genuine commander and leader, whereas before this, they had always been cajoled into doing their duty, like crowds at the hustings, that is, like, like crowds at the, the voting grounds. And the Greek there is interesting. He, Plutarch says, they had been demagogued into doing their duty at their pleasure, so to speak. Uh, that's definitely not Lucullus's style at all. So he's able to instill discipline without becoming a flatterer of his troops, according to Plutarch. So Mithridates, however, is getting ready for him. Plutarch says, in the first Mithridatic War, Mithridates brought out forces that were scary to look at, but not really, let's say, optimized for a real war with the Romans. But now he's learned his lesson and he's changed his game plan. Plutarch explains, When therefore Mithridates thought to go to war the second time, maybe he means the third time, or maybe he's talking about Mithridates reforming his army after, in, in order to fight Morena. But anyway, the situation with the army of Mithridates is as follows, according to Plutarch. He organized his forces into a genuinely effective armament. He did away with barbarous hordes from every clime and all their discordant and threatening cries. He provided no more armor inlaid with gold and set with precious stones, for he saw that these made rich booty for the victors, but gave no strength whatsoever to their wearers. Instead, he had swords forged in the Roman fashion, and heavy shields welded. He collected horses that were well-trained rather than richly caparisoned, and a hundred and twenty thousand footmen drilled in the Roman phalanx formation, and sixteen thousand horsemen not counting the scythe-bearing four-horse chariots, which were a hundred in number. On the Roman phalanx formation, Roman phalanxes, the Roman legions were very flexible. They had sort of units and subunits and sub-subunits, cohorts, maniples, legions, cohorts, maniples. We don't need to get into it now, but... So he, he reformed more on the Roman fashion. Further, he put in readiness ships, which were not tricked out with gilded canopies or baths for concubines and luxurious apartments for women, but which were rather loaded down with armor and missiles and munitions of war. Then he burst into Bithynia. Bithynia is northwest Asia Minor, right across the straits from modern-day Constantinople, sort of northwest Turkey on the Asia side. So he burst into Bithynia, and not only did the cities there receive him again with gladness, but all Asia suffered a relapse into its former distempered condition, 
afflicted as it was, past bearing by Roman moneylenders and tax gatherers. These were afterwards driven off by Lucullus, harpies that they were, snatching the people's food. But then, at that time, he says, he merely tried by admonishing them to make them more moderate in their demands and labored to stop the uprisings of the towns, hardly one of which was in a quiet state. So Bithynia is basically down the coast of northern Asia Minor from Pontus. Pontus is Mithridates' home region. It's uh, the part of Asia Minor right next to the Caucasus land bridge. So uh, Mithridates invades Bithynia. And Lucullus has this issue. And the reason that Mithridates is able to get a lot of local support, once again, is that the Romans have not solved their problem with provincial abuses particularly by the business classes of Rome, by the equestrian tax collectors. Sulla imposed a large indemnity upon Asia in the former Mithridatic War. So there are some administrative failures, let's say, that that are making it easy for Mithridates here. And these tax gatherers in particular, these publicans, they're going to be a big issue for Lucullus. Publicans, you might have read about them in the Gospels and the New Testament, these are the local tax farmers. They're extorting the locals, and they don't like being thwarted or even restrained. So we'll get to them eventually. Now, Mithridates has invaded Bithynia, which, again, northwest Turkey, the Asia side of the Bosporus. Lucullus is coming up from the south, from Asia. I think he lands in Ephesus in Asia, not actually in Cilicia, interestingly. But anyway, so he's coming up from the south with a land army, but the man who is Lucullus's co-consul that we mentioned earlier, this guy Cotta, he tries to attack Mithridates from the north, mainly by sea, and the Senate actually sent both of the consuls for this big war brewing, and Lucullus is the main guy with the land forces, and Cotta is kind of his junior helper, but Cotta gets a little bit too excited, and he thinks he can take Mithridates before Lucullus gets there and score a quick triumph, and he gets into trouble. Mithridates just defeats him, and he annihilates the fleet, and he's got Cotta besieged in a city named Chalcedon, right on the Asia side of the Bosporus Straits. And it's looking bad for Cotta on the one hand, but people are telling Lucullus, hey, Mithridates is busy in Bithynia, why don't you go attack his home base of Pontus while the king is away? However, Plutarch says, Lucullus in a harangue, which he made them to the troops, I guess, or harangue, you know, a big public speech in front of the troops. He says that he would rather save one Roman from the enemy than take all that enemy's possessions. And when Archelaus, who had held command for Mithridates and Boeotia, this is actually interesting. Uh, in the intervening time, you might recall from the life of Sulla, the, the commander that Sulla was facing in mainland Greece in the first Mithridatic War is this guy Archelaus, same guy. Well, he's switched sides. He's, he's on the side of the Romans now. Um, he defected. So Archelaus held the command for Mithridates in Boeotia, and, and then he had abandoned his cause and was now in the Roman army, stoutly maintained that if Lucullus were once seen in Pontus... He would master everything at once in Mithridates' home kingdom. Well, Lucullus declared that he was at least as courageous as the hunter. He would not give the wild beasts the slip 
and stalk their empty lairs. So he says, I'm not going to go try to take the lion's lair while the lion's away. I'm going to go after the lion himself. And he decides to attack Mithridates while Mithridates is attacking Chalcedon. So Lucullus gets there, and he's got an inferior army, substantially inferior army, maybe 30,000 to Mithridates' 100 or so, 150,000, according to the numbers at least we have from Lucullus. And so Lucullus, is, he's got to formulate a strategy. How's he going to handle such a numerically inferior army that probably knows the terrain better? Well, here's the strategy that he formulates. And I think that the lesson here is take the time to do the math. Quote, but Lucullus, feeling sure that no human provision or wealth could maintain for any length of time, and in the face of an enemy, so many thousands of men as Mithridates had, ordered one of the captives to be brought to him, and asked him, first, how many men shared his mess, and then how much food he had left in his tent. When the man had answered these questions, he ordered him to be removed and questioned a second and a third in like manner. So he's basically asking these soldiers, all right, how much food do you eat per day? And how much, how much, how many stores of food do you have? How much, how many days worth of food does every soldier have? And he, he, he says, okay, comparing the amount of food provided with the number of men to be fed, Lucullus concluded that within three or four days, the enemy's provisions would fail them. All the more, therefore, did he trust to time and collected into his camp a great abundance of provisions, that so himself in the midst of plenty he might watch for the enemy's distress. So he's going around and gathering provisions, knowing that Mithridates is going to start to have trouble as time goes on. So I want to get to this first great battle, the Battle of Cyzicus or, or Kizikos. I'll summarize the lead up here. So Lucullus is kind of in the neighborhood, Mithridates besieging Cotta at Chalcedon, and Mithridates decides, forget Cotta, forget Chalcedon. It's going to be hard to, to crack the city open. It's a, it's a well-fortified city. He's going to go and try to capture a different city, Cyzicus which is a nearby city along the coast. It's actually on an island in those days. Now it's a peninsula with a little land bridge connecting it to the mainland. It's near Bandirma in Turkey. It's a little city there called Erdek. So it's a little peninsula now, but then it was an island. Cyzicus has a good harbor. There was a famous battle fought by Alcibiades and the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War. This is the battle where the successor to the killed Spartan commander wrote this famous, very short letter. Ships gone, Menderus dead, men are starving, don't know what to do. And that was the extent of his letter. Famous episode in the Peloponnesian War. So that's Cyzicus. It's got a good harbor. Mithridates can raid the coast of Asia with his fleet if he uses it as a base. So uh, it's a very strategically important city. And Cyzicus, though, is one of the cities that is stuck by Rome in its alliance. Many others in the area we've talked about, they went over to Mithridates' side, but not this one. So Lucullus' job is save Cyzicus. Mithridates makes a lightning motion and, and gets into the neighborhood of Cyzicus before Lucullus, but Lucullus comes up uh, quickly. And so Mithridates has the city itself besieged on the island. He's patrolling the waters with his fleet He's also got a camp on the mainland right across there. It's like 
a half a mile across this little strait. And Lucullus has a camp on the mainland also, and he's near Mithridates' forces. But remember, he doesn't have a fleet, so he can't really directly help Sisychus very easily. Um, and his strategy, though, is, is to not attack Mithridates if he, if he can help it, to, to starve him out. And so it's really crucial for Lucullus that the people of Sisychus hold out and basically participate with him in this strategy of starving out Mithridates. And I'm going to read you this next passage here that I think illustrates the importance of finding a way to keep lines of communication open when you've got, say, an ally who's really taking on a lot of fire and they're trying to figure out how long they should hold out. Okay, here's Plutarch. Mithridates was besieging Sisychus both by land and sea, having encompassed it with ten camps on the land side, and having blockaded with his ships by sea the narrow strait which parts the city from the mainland. Although the citizens viewed their peril with a high courage and were resolved to sustain every hardship for the sake of the Romans, still they knew not where Lucullus was, and were disturbed because they heard nothing of him. And yet his camp was in plain sight only they were deceived by their enemies. These pointed the Romans out to them, lying encamped on the heights, and said, Do you see those forces? It is an army of Armenians and Medes, which Tigranes has sent to assist Mithridates. So Lucullus is holding the high ground there, and uh, they're saying, Oh, that's the Armenians on our, t- on our team, not the Romans. They were therefore terrified, these Cisacenes, to see such hosts encompassing them and had no hopes that any way of succor remained, even if Lucullus should come. However, in the first place, Demonax was sent into them by Archelaus, some buddy of Archelaus, and told them that Lucullus was arrived. They disbelieved him, and thought he had invented his story, merely to mitigate their anxieties. But then a boy came to them who had escaped from his captivity with the enemy. On their asking him where he thought Lucullus was, He laughed at them, supposing them to be jesting. But when he saw that they were in earnest, he pointed out the Roman camp to them, and their courage was revived. So the people take a little bit of hope. After this, Lucullus gets a big fishing boat from a nearby lake, and he sends it across secretly in the night, packed with some Roman soldiers. And so he's maybe got a few dozen Roman soldiers in the city now to prop them up, let them know about the plan, make them feel supported. And then something interesting happens. It's a stroke of good fortune, but it's accompanied by some divine signs, so the story was told afterwards. And Plutarch likes to include these oracles and divine signs, and they're entertaining, but I I think they're interesting because whatever you think of divine signs from heaven, these things give you a sense of what kind of emotions were at play and how big the stakes were to the people involved. You know, here's a little town in Asia Minor on an island... And you might not think that it would deserve so much attention, but this is a really major engagement in, in Roman history, certainly for the people involved. I mean, who would have heard of Austerlitz if Napoleon hadn't fought a great battle there? That's kind of comparable to Sisychus. But here's Plutarch on the signs from heaven. It would seem also that heaven, in admiration of their bravery, emboldened the men of Sisychus by many manifest signs and especially by the following. The festival of Persephone was at hand, and the people, in lack of a black heifer for the sacrifice, fashioned one of dough and brought it to the altar, 
Now the sacred heifer reared for the goddess was pasturing like the other herds of the Cisacenes on the opposite side of the strait, on the mainland, that is. But on that day, she left her herd, swam over alone to the city, and presented herself for the sacrifice. <laughs> the black, the, the, the pure black heifer came all of her own will for the sacrifice. And again, the goddess appeared in a dream to Aristagoras. So Persephone appears to Aristagoras, the town clerk, saying, Lo, I am here, and I bring the Libyan fifer against the Pontic trumpeter. Bid the citizens, therefore, be of good cheer. And the Cisacenes are kind of scratching their heads. What? While the Cisacenes were lost in wonder at the saying... I mean, it's clear enough what the, the Pontic trumpeter is. That's Mithridates. But who is this Libyan fifer, the Libyan, Libyan piper? Well, at daybreak, the sea began to toss under a boisterous wind, and the siege engines of the king along the walls, the wonderful works of Nicomedes the Thessalian, who is, I guess, some master of machines of war, by their creaking and cracking showed clearly what was about to happen. Then a south wind burst forth with incredible fury, shattered the other engines in a short space of time, and threw down with a great shock the wooden tower a hundred cubits high. So there's your, your Libyan fifer there. It's a, a wind from the south, i.e. from Africa, from, from Libya. And uh, a tower like 200 feet tall, it, it knocked it over. It is related, too, that the goddess Athena appeared to many of the inhabitants of Ilium in their sleep. Ilium is a nearby city on the mainland. Dripping with sweat, the goddess was, showing part of her peplus, her dress, torn away, and saying that she was just come from assisting the Cisacenes. And the people of Ilium used to show a stele, which had on it certain decrees and inscriptions relating to this matter. So that's what happened to... Uh, Nature kind of turned against Mithridates there. And so after this disaster for Mithridates, you know, he sees it's going to be hard to finish this Sisychus siege. And Plutarch explains why. I think we already kind of know why, but here's, here's what he says. Mithridates, as long as his generals deceived him into ignorance of the famine in his army, was vexed that the Sisycenes should successfully withstand his siege. But his eager ambition quickly ebbed away when he perceived the straits in which his soldiers were involved and their actual cannibalism. Wow. For Lucullus was not carrying on the war in any theatrical way, nor for mere display, but, as the saying is, was kicking in the belly and devising every means for cutting off food. So there you have it. Kind of a bookish strategy, if you think about it. It's the old saying, amateurs talk strategy, experts talk logistics. Well, Lucullus knew what really wins wars. Um, and so he, uh, he cut off Mithridates' food supplies and, and, and pressured him. And Mithridates is forced at this point to send off a detachment of troops into the hinterland, uh, seems like probably to gather some supplies, and that's when Lucullus pounces at last. And here's what Plutarch says. On learning of this, that Mithridates has sent off a lot of his troops uh, and his horsemen, on learning of this, Lucullus returned to his camp 
while it was still night and early in the morning in spite of the storm. He took ten cohorts of infantry and his cavalry and started in pursuit, although snow was falling and his hardships were extreme. Many of his soldiers were overcome with the cold and had to be left behind, but with the rest he overtook the enemy at the river Rindicus and inflicted such a defeat upon them that the very women came forth from Apollonia, a nearby town, and carried off their baggage and stripped their slain. Many fell in the battle, as it is natural to suppose, 6,000 horses and 15,000 men were captured, besides an untold number of beasts of burden. All these followed in the train of Lucullus as he marched back past the camp of the enemy. And uh, this is kind of funny here. Uh, I'll include it. Sallust says, to my amazement, that camels were seen then by the Romans for the first time. He must have thought that the soldiers of Scipio, who conquered Antiochus before this, and those who had lately fought Archelaus at Orchomenus in Chironea were unacquainted with the camel. So maybe that was the first time that Romans saw camels. Maybe not. Plutarch isn't so sure. So after this defeat, Mithridates decides to take to the sea, and he, he sends the rest of his army in a full retreat back to Pontus. And that is when Lucullus pounces yet again, and this time he annihilates the army. It's a hugely lopsided victory. Plutarch says he defeated, he, he killed or captured as many as 300,000, which sounds like a huge exaggeration. But then, you know, you think about all the camp followers. Maybe these people are taking their families or slaves or attendants with them. Either way, it's, it's a crushing defeat, and things are looking bad for Mithridates. And then Lucullus now spends some time recruiting a local fleet, in the Aegean, and he defeats Mithridates' as naval commander at sea after that. And so with that, his starve-out strategy really worked, and he was famous for doing this against Mithridates. And this started a domino effect is basically what happens. You know, first he has this crushing blow on this, maybe it was a foraging party, and then after that, the main army who decided to retreat, probably because they're low on supplies, he smashes them too, and then you get this sea battle. They've got momentum behind them. So, at this point, it seems like the war is practically over, right? But Mithridates himself is a slippery man, and he's a survivor. Here's Plutarch. Mithridates put to sea with his armament, eager to reach Pontus before Lucullus turned and set upon him. He was overtaken, however, by a great storm which destroyed some of his vessels and disabled others. The whole coast for many days was covered with the wrecks dashed upon it by the billows. As for the king himself, the merchantman, boat on which he was sailing, was too large to be readily beached when the sea ran so high and the waves were so baffling. Nor would it answer to its helm, and it was now too heavy and full of water to gain an offing. Accordingly, he abandoned it for a light brigantine belonging to some pirates, and entrusting his person to their hands, contrary to expectation, and after a great hazard, got safely to Heraclea in Pontus. So Mithridates makes it home to fight another day, and we'll bring it home there too ourselves, and in there. Now a couple of things to keep in mind from the story if you want to emulate some of Lucullus's qualities and, and his successes, and we'll cover more over the next two episodes. Well, first... If you get entrusted with an important duty that involves, say, networking with some fancy people who want to 
wine and dine you. Never forget your mission. Lucullus didn't allow himself to cut loose during his time in Egypt, even though maybe nobody needed to know if he did, but he would know. And because he was prompt in executing his duties, he was able to help Sulla out in a pinch later on in the war. Second, even if you hold yourself to a high standard, don't be afraid to flatter the key person if you need to, as Lucullus did with Prychia, Cathegus' girlfriend. This was really a key to his success, the success of his entire career, really. Finally, if you're working on a project, especially something involving a lot of numbers and logistics, master the details. Napoleon was famously good at this. You know, Lucullus didn't just count the number of troops on either side. He took the time to figure out the enemy's logistical structure. If he had tried some kind of daring, creative battle tactic on Mithridates, instead of just waiting him out and starving him, he could have exposed himself to much more risk and maybe gotten defeated just like Morena had a few years earlier. Okay, that's all for today. Remember to check out our Rome retreat and sign up. We'd love to have you along. Costofglory.com slash retreat. There's a link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.